Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer Blondie. This is Roland Olsabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the things that brought punk culture to the mainstream, the Warp Tour was high on the list. Many bands played the traveling festival and broadened and expanded their audience in the process. The Warp Tour is commonly thought of as a punk festival, but ska was always a significant part of the programming, even after the 90s, when the genre was supposedly dead. Legacy bands like Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish regularly played the festival, but so did new bands like Westbound Train. Today we speak to Warp Tour organizer Kevin Lyman and discuss his personal ska roots and understand the role ska played with Warp Tour year after year. Aaron, did you ever go to Warp Tour? I did not. I went to Warp Tour. Oh, yeah? A couple times, yeah. I never paid to go to Warp Tour, though. Oh, wow. <laughs> How'd you get in for free? I'd get on the guest list from somebody or sneak in. Tons of people, though, went to Warp Tour. And I'd say for a lot of people younger than us, it's how they got into punk and ska and hardcore. Yeah, I think Warp Tour was very, very influential for people that were the generation just under us. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people our age went in the 90s, but I mean, I think that like the late 90s and the 2000s and on, I think was just like almost like a rite of passage for people that were a teenager in those years. Definitely. I think that it's kind of left uh, a hole uh, in a way because it was such a good entry point for a lot of people to get into DIY culture. I kind of hope that something uh, appears similar to Warp Tour for the next generation. I think the other thing interesting about Warp Tour is that, you know, it was kind of known as a punk festival, even though it was a little more diverse than that. Mm -hmm. But it was probably the closest thing to there being a ska festival, a touring ska festival in the 90s and 2000s, because really it's the only festival that consistently had at least like one or two, if not like four or five ska bands on it. Yeah. So Warp Tour is a ska festival. First thing I want to talk about is um, Jeff Rosenstock's band, Arrogant Sons of Bitches. Mm-hmm. From, as I understand it, he played Warp Tour in the parking lot in 2003. Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. And unclear to me if it was a uh, just sneak up and do it or get, got permission or yes, you can do it. But, uh, I, I, you know. Let's just say it was not. It was not endorsed and not discouraged. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That was kind of my term through all the bands. We always had a lot of bands who wanted to come out and follow the tour, maybe sell CDs in line. 
Then it got to the point where some people were kind of setting up a stage out front or driving by in a truck on a flatbed and playing from the line. And I was like, yeah, I never shut it down, but I never said, I said, yes, it could happen, if that makes sense. Because <laughs> the venues would a lot of times freak out. I'd be like, it's totally cool. Like, you know, I'm fine with it. I have no problem with it. Well, did you okay it? Well, no, these that it shows that they have a lot of gumption and they're willing to get out there and, and try new things. How can I not discourage that? That was the story of my life, trying new things. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that the stage he was playing with, um, I kind of loosely let the I gave the kid advice and probably slipped him 50 bucks for gas money once in a while. One of the members of the band, JT Tourette, he was in a band called Sprout, and I think they played, officially played Warp Tour in 2002. They played, yeah, on the Ernie Ball stage, I think, yeah. Yeah, so he said he told me that he asked you about it, and you said, um, let me see what, if I can get that quote. Uh, yes, but you didn't hear it from me. Yeah, that was pretty much the story. <laughs> that was pretty much the story of the 22 years uh, of trying to bend the rules a little bit because, you know, we did, there was permits and there was venue rules, but, you know, I, I knew what we could probably push and, and get away with. So mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I gave... I tried to. I understood these the, the, what they were going. They were doing these 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 young people out with new bands. That it was hard. It's hard as a new band finding gigs and finding fans. So you know when I was hearing that bands were able to sell a hundred CDs in a line at Warp Tour, or they made fans, or they made friends. I mean, I there was a band that you know I sometimes hear a great band in the parking lot and invite him to come play a barbecue. Or up in Canada, that band was Ill Scarlet. They were playing out in the front of the line. I said, wait, you got to come play the barbecue tonight. And they're like, we have a gig down in Toronto. I said, cancel it. You're going to have much more fun at this barbecue and you're going to meet other people. They ended up meeting a, a gentleman who ended up being their manager. And I think they you know, eventually had a pretty successful career for a while in Canada. And they did a couple warp tours with me. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think in Jeff's case, too, they were on tour and shows, you know, they had punk shows lined up and they were getting canceled. And so they were just like, what are we going to do? Oh, wait a minute. Warp tours around here. Let's just see if we can uh, yeah. salvage some of our tour by piggybacking off of warp tour. Yeah. And he, you know, he's so talented that, you know, he's going to make fans out there and he was working and they probably made enough gas money to at least to do the next city or work their way home or whatever they had to do or between gigs. So it was always a fun part of the warp tour. You know, there was other bands who, did it and eventually played on the main stage, including May Day Parade. Mm-hmm. They started in the parking lot? Yeah, they started in the parking lot. Wow. So at the same time that this is happening, somebody's making a movie called Punk Rock Holocaust. I know Jeff and some of those people were um, had cameos. I think you were you were in it. I don't know if you had a major role or not. That one was fully endorsed by me. <laughs> but we did and all the rules again on getting it done because it was a, a Doug Sackman who worked for like trauma films. Um, and they do all those like super like I don't even, not even B movies, like D movies, you know, those. You know, like purposely bad. Yeah. And he's, they said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have this like theme of the Warp Tour and we do a murder or slasher film on the Warp Tour? I was like, sure, why not? And, uh, they call it. They came around with a and and really they were writing the movie as they went. I'd like to say writing the movie. You know, I, I, it, it was more like okay, we're gonna we got one band that's willing to be killed. Okay, so band gets killed and and then all of a sudden it was like 
every band wanted to be killed in this movie. <laughs> sure, but, yeah. But they were kind of sitting with Doug, who's a fantastic person. He's doing very well in the world right now, doing like more traditional films and TV. But he was always, he was out there and, you know, there'd be this guy skateboarding around with a machete and bandana. I don't know if this would go over too well right now, but a machete and a skateboard. And, he, and then he would, you know, slice a band open or kill them on stage. And they got killed by like, <laughs> You know, drum stands, uh, you know, like a cymbal a, a stand going through the heart or, you know, it was just like it was like ongoing. And then it got to this point where we needed crowd scenes so he could reach out on the Internet to this following he had for these movies and say, if you're going to be at the Warp Tour, be there at 11 o'clock, an hour before doors. We're going to bring in and film you some murder scenes. And of course, I'd have, we wouldn't tell the venue. And then the morning of, I'd go, hey, we're going to do something here. And then we'd bring all these people in and cover them in blood. And then they needed more of a crowd scene. So while a band was playing on one stage, they would be like doing this murder scene on the stage while people were waiting up next to it. It was pretty funny. But it actually it really scared a few people a few times because blood would be squirting out of their neck and they, one security guard didn't get the message or something and uh, the reactions. So, you know, it, it got down to the, I think the final part of it was there was two bands left and most of the people were killed. So it was uh, the used and simple plan. So the band became simply used. <laughs> did you play yourself or did you play a character i played myself and i was covering up the murders and denying them because we had to keep our sponsors happy mm. <laughs> i've read about it but i have not been able to find it online it was on youtube for a while i think oh was it okay I mean, it's been translated. Like, talk to Doug, and he's like, oh, it's been translated into, like, eight. We did, like, Punk Rock Holocaust 2, and then we did, he, he's got, like, Punk Rock Holocaust 3 in the back. But we didn't, you know, it was like we didn't go to the labels to get permission. We didn't go to the managers to get permission. We didn't get the agents involved. It was like the bands. And then the bands got so serious, like, you have to kill us. And then a band that wasn't even on tour, Pennywise, and you can't say no to Pennywise, was like, you better come kill us. We want to be in the movie. So they had to go kill them when they were actually playing, I think the Trocadero in, in Philadelphia or something. They had to go down with the film crew. That's where they're based and kill the band so they could be part of the movie. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so Kevin, you're um, obviously warp tour has had a history of having ska be part of the festival pretty much the entire time the festival existed. Absolutely. Um, but your roots go back to the eighties just as a, as a ska fan, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I was in, probably the, some of the first music that I started to really appreciate was around 79, you know, and that would be like the clash and things such as that, you know, and, and some of those bands from like around that period of time, I was starting to get turned on to, you know, in the early eighties. And then as I transferred into putting on shows around it in 1982 myself, while I was in college, those bands always included like fishbone. Um, included a band called the Targets, which was from out in uh, Pomona Valley, Chardon Square. Uh, there was always like this kind of element of mod ska kind of vibe that I really kind of enjoyed and then gravitated towards Los Angeles. And that was bands like the Untouchables. And uh, you know, my mm -hmm. first gig ever was as a drum tech, well, drum tech for basically the Untouchables, outside of putting on my own shows and stuff. Um, I, I, I faked being a drum tech, which the drummer realized in about five minutes I wasn't a drum tech. <laughs> but they let me go on tour with them a little bit. I ended up doing merchandise and, and helping out in other ways. But uh, yeah, it always has been Scott. I still have a, a, an affinity for it and Scott influenced music. 
Uh, so, you know, a lot of this stuff that's kind of, you know, this stuff that's kind of going on right now. And, and that's why you'd always find that kind of influence out on the tour. So the reggae ska, that's, you know, that's for my heart. So I always wanted to have something like that. And it was a, something to break up the day too. Like the sound was nice to have on a stage in the middle of the day or later in the day, kind of give people's ears like a change. And I think Scott, you know, bands like Les and Jake, you know, right up until the end of Warp Tour were saying they were amazed at how many people had never heard them before. Mm. <laughs> the Untouchables on drum tech gig. Was there a reason why you said I'm a drum tech, even though you weren't a drum tech? Was Did you feel like that, you could fake that? I was working at a show. Oh, yeah, I thought I could fake it. You know, it's, that's the funny part. I thought, so I was working a show and the Untouchables fired the drum tech and they said, we're going on the road in two days. We need a drum tech. I'm like, I can do it. And I drove, I drove straight over to Guitar Center and I went in and I told the guy, I needed to learn how to be a drum tech. And he goes, well, it takes time. I go, no, I need to know by tomorrow because I'm going out with the Untouchables. And they were a big band in L.A. at that point. And <laughs> he laughed because Glenn, Glenn Simmons was their drummer and he was well known around L.A. As, as like a really good drummer. So he wasn't. So I went to the rehearsal studio and I was so nervous touching the equipment. I was sweating. I was picking up one little piece at a time. He looked at me right away and goes, you've never touched a drum kit in your life. I go, yeah, that's not quite true. I did it last night before I came here. <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, we've got no one else. So why don't you come? At least you can help me with the cases and I'll, I'll try to show you what, you know, we'll get through it. And, uh, I got to go on a little bit of a tour with them, but never got to be their drug tech. So you ended up doing more like merch stuff then, or just loaded. I did merch and then they fired the road manager. So I started helping being a road manager, like almost like three days into it or something. What happened with the road manager? Why did they fire him? Oh, they were always firing someone. <laughs> Probably in those days, it was like, you know, trust me, it was a lot as professional as things are now. And probably the road manager was drunker than the rest of the crew. So they decided they better get rid of them. Okay. Yeah. The history of Untouchables, I think they had four managers yeah. through the course of the band. So yeah, Dave Lumian, Dave Lumian was their first one. No, no, he was there. He was the third or fourth and he was the one that kind of stayed with the band. But before that, it was... um. So uh, different people, but one of them was Ramon Estevez from the uh, Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estev. Family. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably short-lived. Short-lived, but I think that, um, you know, through him, they got to play um, Charlie, or not, I'm sorry, Martin Sheen's house in Malibu, like for <laughs> birthday parties. <laughs> I mean, they had a really cool vibe, like getting to do Repo Man, being the band in Repo Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah. They were like, you know, they were like, such a great band in LA and they were well liked by that Hollywood crowd at that point, you know? So yeah, I think that led to that, you know, that, that chance. And, and that was during the Dave Lumian time is when I kind of started, you know, they, they'd already been around a few years by then. So, yeah, he seemed like the manager that kind of understood them the best and kind of had, had the best idea of how to, how to work with them. I think some of the earlier ones didn't so much. I think you're correct on that. Yeah. Did you just do the one tour with them or did you uh, continue to? Oh, no. Yeah, I just I I like they were like, great, Kevin. Thanks. And then I was already starting to get really a, a firm hold on L.A. Uh, per, being a promoter rep and working on shows. So, you know, I couldn't really I didn't really want to go on the road. I, I'm not good at driving at night. So that's I'm useless. I, I was useless. I'd fall asleep. Uh, so <laughs> I couldn't really drive the truck. So the guys were like, this guy's completely worthless on the road. And um, I went home and just started working, you know, and I probably worked with, the, you know, a band like the Untouchables at that point, 
once or twice a month, they were playing something I was doing in LA. So, you know, my favorite, you know, to get to hang out and at least do the shows with them then was great. Did you get to go to the on club? Yes. Went to the on club. Uh, you know, that was the, that was the, that was the place, you know, uh, that was the place where people wanted to get dressed up a little bit. And uh, to honest, it was like, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to meet girls, go to the on club, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or Odyssey. I think it was the Odyssey dis, uh, dance club in LA. There was a, uh, there was a few dance clubs, but the on club was like, you know, it was, it had a cool vibe. It just had a cool vibe. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. I mean, it's before my time and I'm also from Northern California, but that's what it sounds like from everyone I've talked to. What did it look like inside? Oh my God. It was, it was the stage was kind of small. Okay. It was fairly narrow and always dark. <laughs> it, was like a, it was always dark in that club. Like just lights, lighting was not like a, a benefit, which, um, probably made guys look like me more appealing to the girls. <laughs> so, uh, it was, a, it was a, it was just fun. It was just a cool vibe and people were dancing and having a good time, you know, but you know, don't, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a, a big venue, like the Palladium or the palace or these kind of places that people were playing at that point. But then when that band grew later on, the untouchables could headline some of those venues in LA. Mm. Yeah. But they were, but they, I think they were, it was every Thursday night they were playing at the on club for, they were like the house band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, I think it was their their very first show because they were they started out as kids who went to the on club and they got to know Howard Parr, the the guy who ran it. And he they they appealed to him. They said, "Can we bring our band?" And he said, "Sure, you know, I like you guys as people, you know." And that's how they got to develop as a band was through, was then the on club. Yeah, it, it was a nice period of time in LA. So you told me before that um the first show you ever booked was Fishbone yeah it really you know it was um, on you know outside of, i had probably done a few things at school but i rented a community hall in claremont california where i lived it was called taylor hall and it was like it was one of those things where i did where it was like beer was included and there was going to be five bands and and of course i got fishbone to come out and play um at the show which was super cool uh, Fishbone was like my band. It was like, ah, oh, Fishbone, I can give you a hundred dollars. Couple, of, sure, we'll be there. You know, it was. Uh, <laughs> and they came out and played that show, and all of, uh, the show was was packed, and it was raining really hard, and the whole venue got just covered in mud because people were going out to smoke their clothes or whatever, and you know, it was like there was no, and it was like I felt bad because um, the kid who ran it, his name was I can't I remember his name, Tony Cisneros, was actually working as like the guy who's supposed to be the it's just like a community center and he was supposed to kind of clean up and make sure we didn't do anything but he got too drunk and passed out in a broom closet and (laughs) and we couldn't we tried to clean up but you know when you're trying to load out a show and you're and we left it kind of messy and the next day they had a wedding come in and they couldn't find tony and they found him passed out in the broom closet they found him as they were setting up for the wedding still in the broom closet as they went in to close it the doors were open the wedding nothing you know (laughs) and it was like oh gosh i trust me and i lived in claremont so it was like i was never allowed to do anything of that again (laughs) wow so you're kind of putting on shows but then at what point do you move into it in a more professional capacity uh well i, I went out of college i, I graduated and, and i didn't know what i was going to do as a, you know i guess a lot of people now it's funny when my students come to me and go no no i go well i was kind of that same person you know um so i went over to hawaii for a while and lived in hawaii for a summer 
And then I came back and I needed a job. Really, I, I didn't know what to do. I was going to run youth camps or do something with my degree. And um, someone said, hey, they need a stage manager at Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach. And you did pretty good in college. You know, the sound company was like, Kevin, you know, they, this promoter needs help down there. And I said, sure. What's it paying? And it was like a hundred bucks a night in cash. So I was, yeah, I'm in. And uh, started working at Fender's Ballroom. And this promoter was called High Times Events. And they were doing like bands like Lone Justice, The Blasters, kind of that kind of Americana rockabilly kind of shows. And she was booking those shows. And in, also in that venue in Long Beach, Golden Voice was doing shows. And one time they co-promoted a show. And again, I remember it was Motorhead that they co-promoted. And at that point, Paul Tolette, who runs Golden Voice now and started Coachella, and me had gone to school together at Cal Poly. So it was really weird, this connection through Cal Poly Pomona. And they said, oh, Kevin, you want to handle production? Because I think I was my qualifications at the point was I could actually read. Um, and some of the people at the venues were more like, if you didn't like something, they'd beat you up. So I'd say, I could read a contract. So I got you know to run that show for Golden Voice, that co-promote with Marcel, and uh, who was the promoter on the other end. And then Golden Voice was like, hey, we're starting to do more shows. Would you like to pick up some promoter rep duties for us? And I'm like, sure. And that grew very quickly until I was doing shows for all the promoters in town at that point, Avalon Attractions, Golden Voice, Woe Nelly, which was doing all the hair metal bands. Um, I was willing, I wanted to work every day of the week. I wasn't like, I'm only going to work in ska or I'm only going to work in punk. I wanted to work every day of the week. So I had got a good reputation and pretty soon I was doing over 300, I was doing 320 shows a year in Los Angeles. Wow. And uh, that really allowed me to kind of get my chops, like understanding how everything worked. I, I learned how to do basic sound. I learned how to do basic lighting. I threw people off stages all night and set up dressing rooms. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, you know, it was what we did. And eventually I got tired of throwing people all night. So we, I built some of the first barricades. I know people hate me for that, but you know, it was just uh, kind of putting some safety around some of these shows and trying to to run them as professional as possible and also providing what bands needed to have a good show. Um, you know, things were changing even in alternative punk rock where there was writers attached to the contracts that they wanted certain things. And that was my job to provide them. I don't know if you worked at um, Fender's ballroom at the time, but in 87, there was a show where bad manners headlined and fishbone opened. Oh yeah. Were you at that show? Oh yeah. This is a show that people in the ska scene talk about as this like sort of turning point in LA ska where it felt like the scene in general was gaining momentum. Yeah, that show that show, you know, I think the capacity of the venue was probably about 1500, 12 to 1500, but I think, you know, honestly back then the fire marshal rules there wasn't really fire marshal rules as much <laughs> and that was one of those shows that if the the only time it would sell out is when the box office window would fog up so much that they couldn't see out that, that kind of, that set the standard for a sellout. And then if someone got thrown out, someone would run around front and say one more ticket available. You know, it was, like, it was a wild place, which eventually the neighbors became, so, uh, there was a, a gentleman I, that I think he was in his eighties who would, was really upset about this. And, one time he got so pissed off, he firebombed the place. He threw a Molotov cocktail into the venue. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Did he, Did that guy get 
uh, you know, in trouble for that, or did I, I think probably he got a civic award from the city of Long Beach? <laughs> but uh, it, you know, it was kind of the end of Offenders Ballroom as a, a big venue. It was it was really just basically a converted parking garage, hmm. or it should have been a parking garage. I don't know. It was it was a wild place because everyone shared one bathroom. There was one hallway that came out of this giant room, and then there was sub rooms around there, and everyone shared the bathroom. So it was like super intense because you would have these punk or ska shows or whatever we were doing in the big room. And then you would have all the longshoremen from Long Beach that were just in the little dingy bar. And then there was like other rooms which might have a quintanera or they'd be having a Filipino wedding. And then everyone would have to go to the bathroom together and everyone would just fight. Everyone would just be fighting all the time in there. Yeah, the hallway was kind of brutal. Wow. It's going back a little bit. Uh, you talked about the targets being like a local band did some yeah. like mod pop stuff and some ska stuff. I was looking them up uh, and they went by the targets, but they also went by Nikki Hart and the targets. Do you remember that? Yeah. Nikki, well, Nikki was the singer. Okay. Yeah, Nikki, Nikki was the singer. I, I'm glad you were my, well, as soon as you said, as soon as you said the name, I was like, Oh yeah, that was her name. I was, couldn't remember her name, the singer, you know? Were they uh, were they kind of big locally? Because I haven't I hadn't really heard them before. They were big, like in the Pomona Valley. Yeah, you know, there was a, always a little there was always a little scene going on out there, mm-hmm. and um, and she and and you know, kind of the leader of that kind of scene. Um, I don't know if they really ever really broke out that much, but they were they were well loved around our our community around that whole Pomona Valley area. And with Fishbone in those early days, I, I think I had read before that you, that they would often sleep on your floor in those early days. Oh, you know, it'd be like, I'd, I'd pay them literally like a hundred bucks to come to a gig. And then they would like leave and they'd for, forget a hundred dollars in equipment and one of the band members. <laughs> we forgot a band member. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like, and I'm, I'm like, okay, you can stay here. So it could be Angelo. It could have been, you know, Kendall or. I think it was Chris, probably Chris Dowd was left behind at one point. And then they'd have to hang out until I drove into LA to do a show. (laughs) There was no like, there was no like Uber to get them home. There was no like, so then it was usually just a night or two, but you know, I was always working in LA. So I'm like, okay, just hang out here for a couple of days until I can get you back to LA. (laughs) How how did they leave them behind? (laughs) It's the story of Fishbone's career. (laughs) I think that they probably left him behind intentionally. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So let's let's jump forward to uh, Warp Tour. So you've been working in, with Golden Voice, and you, you you have a lot of experience promoting. And so you decide you want to do your own f- festival. Yeah. Well, I was at this point. I was you know I do you know pretty much any shows in LA. I was if you know I was involved with Golden Voice and some of these other promoters. And then in 1991, I was asked to be the stage manager of Lollapalooza. So, you know, fast forward from that time where that failed adventure with uh, the Untouchables to 1991. So almost a decade went by before I was like back on the road. I was invited to be the stage manager of the first Lollapalooza by Jane's Addiction. And um, at that point, I, you know, we were kind of, Golden Voice was the company doing Nine Inch Nails and Stone Temple Pilots and, or not, you know, later on Stone Temple, but, you know, Susie and the Banshees and these bands. And they asked me to go as stage manager. So I returned to the road, um, almost crashed and burned the first day because I was so used to working in the clubs where you did everything versus a large amphitheater where it's departmentalized. And I kind of exhausted myself. And a lot of the old crew people said, oh, 
there he goes, he's done. And I pulled myself up and went out and, and finished that and did that whole tour and looked, really observed a lot at that point of like, wow, how fantastic this was to be on this. But maybe one day I'll, I'll get a chance to do my own thing and I'll maybe do something a little different. So that concept of scrambling the lineup was from watching Henry Rollins play to empty seats each afternoon. I would sit there and go, oh, my God, he's so intense and so awesome. Wouldn't it be great if we could put him on right before Jane's Addiction one night? You know? mm -hmm. And what a change that would have been for him because he would have blown everyone. He blew everyone off the stage, but a lot of people didn't see him. Like at a festival, you know, if you play at the same time opening on a tour. And I said, so in the back of my mind, I was at that point going, well, you know, that'd be cool to be able to mix up a lineup each day to give some people a chance to be later in the day. Some would play early. And then in 1995... I was really at that point where I was like, you know, I don't want to be doing working in venues and clubs every night of the week for the rest of my life. You know, um, I didn't want to become, I always call it that guy. Uh, you go to a venue and there's someone bumming your life out. You mm -hmm. know that guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just don't want to be there. And you're like coming in and you're so stoked to see your favorite bands and your heart's excited. And your friends are excited. And then someone just bums you out. And I didn't want to become that. And I saw people starting to become that. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go out and try something one last time for myself because I had heard about the X Games coming and I knew this lifestyle of skateboarding and music. I was doing things with like the Red Hot Chili Peppers where I'd put them on top of a skate ramp at the end of a skate contest and pay them $250. So we we're blending sports and music already in Southern California. We we're doing skateboarding events and we'd have bands play or snowboarding events for charity. And I just said, well, you know, I'm going to go try to do this on my own before I work for someone else and doing it. And that was, you know, going out on the road and that roots of kind of ska, you know, led to no doubt being on that first tour with us. I had a good relationship with them and, and they came out for a while with us, a subline coming out with us. Um, but, you know, mixing it in with bands like L7 and Seaweed and Quicksand and Orange Nine Millimeter. So it was a super eclectic tour that first yeah. year. And I also thought it was a good time to get bands because I was working also in the clubs. And when we had a community, like if you need, if we had a half a pizza, you got half a pizza. If you needed a place to stay, you stayed on our floor of our house. And we had gotten to this point where it kind of had started to change. And a lot of these bands were starting to get signed to record deals. So they were getting guarantees in clubs versus a door deal. So you didn't have that same relationship. So we might draw 16 people one night, but the band was getting a guarantee versus a door deal. So I thought maybe, and I'd start talking to people, I go, you know, in bands like Seaweed, I'd go, do you know the people in No Doubt? They're super cool. Because I saw the fans would probably like to go to a show together if we could figure this out, because it was like they were separating into tribes. And I go, maybe you can bring the tribe back together. So that's what Warp Tour was, was set out to do. So Sublime and No Doubt, they start to really gain momentum in 95, the same year that they played the first Warp Tour. But I imagine you began conversations with them before that. So they probably weren't very big when you started saying you should play my festival. Well, that was a cool thing. I was doing a lot of shows with these bands around LA, you know, mm -hmm. no doubt was playing lots of shows. So, so I kind of, I, I kind of knew where they were at. I, you know, I had the original sublime demo tape, you know, and I just kind of saw how they were connecting in the United in California and I go, wow, this is like, this is going to be a next scene of music. Plus, you know, that first year, I didn't really start talking to the bands until March about doing it with us. And we went out, I think, August 1st, that first year. Mm -hmm. So we, 
so it had to go to the people, your friends, you know? Um, and I'd done enough of Sublime where, you know, either kept them out of trouble or kept their shows from deteriorating into complete, complete chaos. Um, <laughs> I knew, you know, I knew no doubt um, they were one of our favorite bands. Me and Paul would put them on a lot of, Paul would put them on a lot of shows and I always enjoyed working with them and kind of had this conversational rapport with the band. Every time they worked, I always wanted them to look good and play good. And, you know, Gwen immediately we recognized that she could be a star like at any moment. And uh, I was really glad they came with me that first time. Yeah, Sublime has a reputation of being a band that you didn't know if you were going to get the best band in the world one night or the worst band in the world or the biggest train wreck. And sometimes that could happen. That could happen within a set. <laughs> start out, start out super, super cool. And, Brad would look at Bud wrong or Eric, they would just look at each other wrong and then it would just deteriorate into a shit show. And pretty much that's, you know, but that was also like what was so appealing about them too. But also when they did, when they were way on, there was no one with more, like more talent and together than them at that point. And, you know, Brad Knoll, um, unfortunately we lost him. I just, I always think about where, what he would have been doing, you know, he had so much talent that was just starting to be tapped by himself. Was this kind of idea about Sublime true before when they weren't very known? Were they, were they unpredictable like that? Or was it as they were gaining popularity that they became more unpredictable? No, oh, that's who they were. That's just who they, they were. were one, <laughs> they were 100%. You know, they were basically, you know, little Long Beach hoodlums, basically. <laughs> uh Families, you know, they were kind of raising themselves amongst that scene. And that scene in LA and Long Beach, you know, was a little, that whole coastal scene that, you know, spawned those bands, like Hermosa Beach scene with Pennywise, Long Beach with Sublime, you know, it was, you know, TSOL came from that area, you know, that these, they were running in, in, in a crowd that, you know, didn't really believe in any rules. So I went through the um, first, you know, five, no, the first six years of, Warp Tour. So we're talking 95 to 2000. And I just was uh, making a list of the ska bands, a lot of ska bands in those first five years. And I really pretty much all the ones you'd imagined and, and more. Um, I think 98, though, 98 looked to me to be the most ska. You had um, the specials, I think. Were they headlining? Uh, well, you know, we never really had a headliner on war, but they were but high placed. They, they were very cool to have out. I wanted them, and and that's a kind of band that I didn't you know. Those type of bands almost had to approach me, like in a weird that they wanted to do it because you know they were at a certain level, and they would have to take a little bit of a step back, probably financially, to play Warp Tour. But they also understood that it was a great way to expose themselves to new fans. Yeah, so so special. Let's see, ninety eight. We have uh, Aquabats, um, Hepcat. Well, Boston, was Boston on then? Boston's on then. I, I think Boston's. And we have uh, Mad Caddies. Yeah, Boston's, Pie Tasters, Real Big Fish, Rancid. Not technically yeah. ska, but you know they're but always, always some ska influences there. Save Ferris, Ska Vuvi, and the Epitones. Uh, and Voodoo Ghost Schools. Oh, wow. We, we, were, we were definitely Scott-centric. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because, yeah, um, they're they're from a prior generation, really. They're kind of doing their kind of comeback sort of thing. Or, you know, their first real their first real experience in the U.S. in the 90s was of being a big band because they weren't big in the U.S. in the, in the in their own run. Yeah. 
Well, you know, that was a, a chance for them to come back and kind of reconnect and also play with some of these younger bands that they were hearing about. Mm-hmm. You know, they were probably, probably, they probably heard we had a bunch of ska, but I don't know when, when I actually booked them the timing wise, but I'm, you know, the ska community small and they talk, you know, <laughs> well, you know, it was, you know, it's not, it was big, but it was like a small group of people that kind of were working and controlling it. And maybe all those people started talking about it. And I got back to them that, wow, they're really kind of have this really cool ska vibe going on more tour a band like the specials would be like, okay, let's see if we can do something. And then of course, contacting me, I'd be like, Oh, that's one of my heroes. You know, Um, later on, it would bands like Joan Jett or the Buzzcocks or Billy Idol, or, you know, it it would come back and play warp tour. And I'd be like, you know, this is so cool for me to be able to bring some of these bands like the damned played on warp tour. Like these bands are want to come play this thing that I created for younger bands and everything but they want to come be part of it. And, you know, the specials to me were, were great. I, if I remember, we had a, a lot of soccer players that time and they were always out playing soccer with everyone. <laughs> and it was, it was just really always very cool. You know, unfortunately, you know, uh, Joe Strummer was scheduled to play the warp tour the year he'd passed away. Mm. Oh, wow. It just, it just confirmed him on Thanksgiving that he passed away in December and uh, I really think that would have been a cool summer to hang out with Joe Strummer. Yeah, definitely. I was reading the uh, specials biography um, called You're Wondering Now. And th- there was a little talk about the Warp Tour. And it sounded to me like their closest connection was with Rancid, that they were friends with Rancid and that they felt c- good about and comfortable like touring with them. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know Tim Armstrong is such a you know, with Op Ivy, but he is, he's such a student of music mm-hmm. that I'm sure just, you know, they, they were like those, sometimes I would bring those people out and they would be almost like fanboy out over the bands because they never worked with them, you know? But then all of a sudden those bands were like, wait, you have a great repertoire of work too. Let's, 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 and then start hanging out at barbecues. The next thing you know, they've got their tour buses parked next to each other. And, you know, probably Tim Armstrong's forming a band with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A special project but it was it was you know it was always fun for me because you know all these bands got to tour with people that they never got, had a chance to before and later on you would see packages going out with you know less than jake and bowling for soup and aquabats on the same bill um they all you know they all respected each other as musicians and 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 wanted to work with each other later on was that kind of the coolest thing to you about the warp tour like bringing together community and making those connections yeah absolutely Warped was a community. It really was. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping that people can recapture that. Mm-hmm. But I think what, you know, and not, you know, I can reflect on it now was, was my greatest skill set was that, okay, I'm going to put these bands together, but the rest of the community was so important. Yeah. Whether that was the nonprofits or giving people a chance to work or giving people a second chance so they can come work. And then finding, you know, brands that would support us, you know, to be able to put this tour out at a fair price and have those side stages and all those things that other tours and people don't have anymore. Even on festivals, you don't see like this local. We'd always have that local um, stage that we and then a lot of Scott passed through that local stage, you know, yeah. <laughs> other, you know, you know, and like I you know, you, you had bands that I'd run into like stack like pancakes later on. And I just loved them. And I go, come play that stage for, you know, a week on the road and then come back again. And, uh, you know, there always just was some great bands and out there, and, you know, then, you know, transferred to bands like the slackers and agro lights and, 
And they always had a little bit of that ska influence, maybe just not the horn section. Yeah, I, I saw you at one point you tweeted about um, stack like pancakes. So you really like them a lot. Oh, yeah. Fun. You know, but you can only have so many horn sections on the road with you at one time. Because <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of mouths to feed. <laughs> I, I always had to balance it out with like making sure I had 303 that had two members. Right. Because a ska band would show up with eight or nine. So kind of balanced out to an average of five. You know? Tell us about the the barbecue. You kind of mentioned the barbecue before. Can you explain what it is? Well, the barbecue was, was part of the how to build community. And we were out on the road. And a lot of some, you know, sometimes these things would meta, you know, Masticized from from the something that was someone else was doing. So Lagwagon had this little barbecue. Carlos, their road manager, was a great barbecuer, but he had this exclusive pass to have his barbecue. So maybe maybe No Effects and Pennywise or Rancid could have come to his little barbecue. It was it was, ex- and I said you can't do that. I, like it's fine, but I need to be make something inclusive. And I was also thinking of how do you make a place where the community gathers at the end of the night. Not so much the fan community that we just gave a nine-hour show to, but that community of people we're traveling with. Because by then, Warp Tour was traveling with a few hundred people. Eventually, almost a thousand people would be on the road. So you all had a job to do each day, whatever you were doing out there. If you were with the smallest band and you sold merchandise to the production manager of the tour, to the accountants, but everyone was there. So this big city is going down the road, and that community gathered many evenings around a barbecue. It's the same thing I say around here. If everyone set a barbecue up in their front driveway, we probably have a better world out there. Mm. You know, if you shared some barbecue with friends and you sat in your front yard, we saw that during the pandemic neighbors put vegetable. I put vegetables out for neighbors. People played music on their front porches. We were actually a real neighborhood for a while. Now, a lot of people are going back to their current earlier lives, but that's what it was. It was a place to gather so your sponsors, your crew, could, could, everyone could come and meet people and say, oh, what do you do on this tour? Oh, I work for Vans. Oh, I'm in this band. Hey, why don't you come by and grab some shoes tomorrow? Or, hey, I love, I love your music. Oh, wow, I'm with Ernie Ball. Hey, would you like to come by? We have some strings for you tomorrow. Or reverse, like bands would hang out and say, you know what? Let's do a song tomorrow. We have that recording bus on the road. We have the John Lennon bus. Let's meet at the bus and do a song together. So you would have bands like Morgan Heritage and Flogging Molly recording in the bus, just doing amazing things. Bands would sometimes exclusively play the barbecue. They'd get, they'd come in through that and, and they would, um, they would have to, they would be involved with serving food too. Yeah. We would have the barbecue band. That's kind of how they earn their right to be on the road. (laughs) And then, you know, because you had this hot barbecue. And we had to leave. So let's say it was 11 o'clock bus call. And that's when you get on the bus to go to the next city. Those buses have to leave at 11 o'clock. Now, the barbecue might go until 10.55, but everyone left. And there was this hot barbecue that you couldn't just leave there. So the barbecue band would be in charge of cooling down the barbecue, hooking it on their van and driving to the next city. And they would get their 30-minute set that they would play like everyone else. But then after their set, they would have to go to Costco. I'd give them money. And they would go buy stuff for the the following night. They'd come back and do the barbecue. So it was kind of a working position on the road. But they also got their 30-minute set to kind of make fans. And they made – and, you know, the barbecue band was always one of the most popular bands on tour because they were cooking food in the evening for the other bands. Sure, yeah. Now, there's a Canadian band called uh, Boudin Soundclash. I'm not sure if I'm saying their name right. Oh, 
Bedouin Sound Clash. Yeah. Bedouin Sound Clash. They were they started as a barbecue band, right? Too. Yeah, they kind of came out, and they were like the. We, I think that by that point. They weren't going to be a good barbecue band, but I loved them so much. I said, you're like the co-barbecue band. We started in this world where it was co-barbecue bands. You know, So one band would go shopping and one band would set up. Uh, but Bedouin Sound Clash, I mean, you know, they ended up going on to winning some Juno Awards and things. Yeah, really good band. They have some ska and reggae influences. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, really big in Canada, but I think... They also um, had some amount of audience here in the U.S. Yeah, we put out their records on Side One Dummy Records, and that was, you know, I was partners on that record label. Let's see. So, yeah, here's another interesting fact, uh, and it may, it may or may not be accurate because I got it from Wikipedia, so you can verify if it's true or not. But the band of any genre that played Warped Tour the most, I have as Less Than Jake with yeah. 15 of the 25 years. Yeah, Less Than Jake played the most. Yeah. Um, I remember... And I think we were over in Europe at the time when they passed one full year on work tour. Like they played 350, 352 days a year, you know? So they played 352. When they crossed one year of work tour dates, they made shirts for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a shirt, Kevin? I got a shirt. I wish I could find <laughs> that shirt. I can't find any. <laughs> I wish I had more of this stuff. I People are like, do you have, I go, no, nah, I gave it away. Oh no, I don't have that. I mean, there's only so much room that you have for all that stuff. And I'm sure you were getting a lot of cool stuff. You know, I had, nep- I had a lot of nephews and, and nieces that would come over on the holidays and I just put stuff out in a pile and they would all go home with a pile of stuff. <laughs> you kind of met, you touched on this song, but there's been a lot of bands that have played in the 2000s and beyond that are, you know, not, not, not big bands, but, uh, you know, cool, some cool ska bands like um, I'm going to just rattle off a few of them. So you had Oreo ska band. Oreska. 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 So, yeah. Thank you. Which I, which I was just talking to about them the other day with a woman named Nadeshko who came on the road with them uh, from Japan. Yeah. Amazing band. Amazing band from Japan. Oh, yeah. I wanted, I, to, honestly, I wanted to put out their records inside one dummy. I wanted to manage them at one point in the US, but it just got really complicated with Sony Japan mm. that. It, you know, to, they would have broken in the U.S. That band would have been super popular in the U.S. if we could have got them back here to tour more on their own. So you also had a Westbound Train, another amazing, more traditional type ska band has has played Warp Tour. Yeah, Westbound Train, just a, another band with great songs, great things. And like the Agro Lights, I would have Westbound Train play a barbecue. I would see a lot of the bands might not know Westbound Train. But if you put them in a barbecue at playing at the barbecue, all of a sudden, all these artists are like, holy crap, this is now a new favorite yeah. band. <laughs> I can see that. I also see that you had J- Go Jimmy Go play. Was that, were they on the tour or just a Hawaiian date? Uh, they came on the tour with us. Wow. So Go Jimmy Do- Go are from Hawaii and they're, they're more traditional oriented as well. Yeah, we would, because I was also working, not when I was on Warp Tour, I was doing a lot of shows in Hawaii. And that's where I met them first, you know, um, probably the, at Pink's Garage or the Cadillac, one of the clubs there. And this, you, you've also had a Sonic Boom Six on the on the tour. Sonic Boom Six from the UK. Yeah, yeah. I love that band. It's another band that, uh, you know, I, I think they, you know, they have some level of, of popularity in in uh, the UK. But what great people! I had a great summer hanging out with them. Yeah, and then Layla, their singer, uh, I think stage managed. Uh, uh, sick of it all for the last warp tour. Oh, I think she did. Yeah. Do you remember a band called Tree Fort playing warp tour? Oh yeah, Woodcore, Boston Woodcore. <laughs> no, right? they, no, they they were from uh, Atlanta. Atlanta Tree Fort, and they were all kind of 
from all the pictures, they were all getting naked and kissing each other. And stuff. <laughs> Probably blocked that one out of my mind. <laughs> um, I do remember the name, but I'm trying to remember there was a band tree. I think it was just called tree mm. out of Boston. Okay. And it was called, like, like Boston Woodcore was okay. their name. Like they're talking Boston <laughs> Woodcore. But uh, yeah, tree fort. I, yeah. Oh, tree fort. Tree fort was tied in with the guys who made the movie. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Oh really? Yeah, punk rock holocaust. That's why they were probably getting naked. Everything about them was always like over the top. <laughs> but Tree Fort was their band. Like they were also in a band, the filmmakers. So of course everyone has a band. So I had to let them play. That was Tree Fort. Nice. <laughs> I want to talk about um, to the year two thousand five, and I want to kind of lead up to it with a conversation about how Warp Tour kind of was this thing that captured bands from scenes. You know, whether it's the punk scene or the ska scene or whatever. Yeah. And um, con- and connected sort of overlap these scenes. So 2005 was your most financially successful year, right? The the year you sold the most tickets. Yeah. And uh, and the reason, as I understand, it was because you had Fallout Boy and My Chemical Romance on at the peak of when they were breaking. It was a little combo of a bunch of things, and it was almost too much because we you know we also had the Offspring that year. We had All American Rejects, kind of more traditional warp bands. Mm-hmm. We had we had Avenged Sevenfold was their kind of breaking starting point. We had you know Fall Out Boy, My Chemical Romance, Hawthorne Heights. I mean, at one point I think we had, and it was all this timing where where Total Request Live, if you remember TRL, yeah. was kind of a big deal on MTV, and they started to play these bands at the same time. Warp Tour was going out like it was all the timing so all of a sudden our normal half a million crowd we ended up with like 280,000 people who just got off the couch for one day during the summer to go see a show because they've been watching these bands on tv and promptly came out into a parking lot and passed out because they weren't ready to be outside Hmm. and you know it was really a tricky summer because it wasn't our traditional hardcore crowd that could handle nine hours in the sun and a festival setting. A lot of these people were coming to their first show. So it was like, almost like these bands were crossing over to that radio kind of market and that radio crowd who really follows a band over one, one or two songs. Right. Those bands. And I, and I, I like both those bands, you know, Patrick Stump's been on this podcast yeah. and uh, I like the, both of those bands write good songs, but, and they, they came from, they came from the scene. They weren't just manufactured bands as some people kind of like to claim they were, but not at all. We, you had these bands like, you know, from the early days, you know, Offspring and Green Day, these bands came from the scene and they got very popular, you know, same with Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish. But um, I think I, I feel like your story about Warped Tour kind of exemplifies that the bands, the Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance, they they were like scene bands that shot up to a whole new level of pop stardom. They did. And it was this combo. So all of a sudden you know, something we worked hard to, and then all of a sudden it was like crossing over, I think even rock, you know, pop, pop radio, maybe, but alternative radio was still very strong in America. You had the K rocks, you had, you know, Q, uh, Q in Chicago, you had WHFS, you had all these hard, these stations that were just banging these songs like crazy during the summer. And then all of a sudden people saw, Holy crap, I can go see them at the warp tour for, I'm probably tickets at that point were $35, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to go see this band. <laughs> I mean, and I heard, you know, and it was changing. Uh, one of the women, uh, Kate, who worked, ended up working with me after that summer, 
what was selling merchandise for for my chemical romance and the numbers she was telling me they were doing thirty to sixty thousand dollars a day in merchandise out on the warp tour. Damn. On that, you know, and that adds up on a twenty dollar t shirt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was one of it was a pretty wild summer. Um, I think I was just holding on for dear life and trying to just maintain and trying to keep people as safe as I could. We were we were developing almost like, you know, in real time triage units for basically dealing with kids that were passing out because they weren't used to being in the sun and how to get them back up on their feet and then hydrating them. So we developed a lot of techniques during that tour that were late, used at later festivals and tours to keep fans um, safe. The rest of the warp tour, excluding the final warp tour, which we'll talk about in a bit, you tried to continue to appeal to what was current and, and the scenes that were happening in that particular moment. Right. So my first question is, what were the scenes happening after this sort of um, Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance? I guess people call that emo. It's really more pop punk in my mind. Yeah, and then it kind of went out like Day to Remember. Those yeah. kind of ones, you know, we we went to Pierce the Veil, Day to Remember. Is that, you know, Screamo. So we went to Screamo. Uh, what happened after? What else was there? Post-hardcore. Post-hardcore. You know, uh, Metalcore. Metalcore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Cookie Monster Rock. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, so, you know, but I always thought you bring all these people together and you bring the different sounds together and, and, and people will share fans, you know. And then you kind of got into that moment at the time, towards the end of Warp Tour, you know, you were trying to, you know, not, you know, chase trends, but kind of get a feel for them. And a lot of people were like, oh man, Kevin, you should probably, you know, bring mumble rap out and things. And I, I just like, no, this is it. I'm not bringing that out. It's crap. The 2005 was your personal peak year with the festival. Do you think that was the peak for scene bands jumping into the pop realm? Well, I think some of them, you know, you, you, you had bands like 21 pilots and you had, you know, panic at the disco that never just bypassed everything and went played, uh, you know, played arenas, you know? So there was a, there was a wave of those bands, um, but you know, you you don't you know did Paramore ever cross over to the pop realm, you know? Uh, you know, but it was like kind of piecing that thing together, and that the whole goal every summer was to piece something together that added you know one plus one equal three, and go out and try to do a half a million tickets each summer. So Warp Tour gets this reputation of being the punk festival. I think that's kind of interesting because it's kind of eclectic. Yeah, I kind of screwed up on that one, to be honest, probably in 1997. However, punk rock legitimized Warp Tour, I think, in the eyes of a lot of people, because when Pennywise and No Effects came, after that first year, you know, no doubt, Sublime, they blew up right after Warp Tour. Warp Tour helped, like, to get exposure, and they got the labels got a lot of use out of that. But, you know, then we got known by No Effects and Pennywise, so in 1996, and then 97, we did a, a, a film called Punk Rock uh, Summer Camp. So probably went with the punk rock name a little too much. But then again, I always felt that punk rock was in people's hearts and everyone that was willing to go out on a tour like this and, and work as hard as they did had a little punk rock in them. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what would really make me happy some days was I'd be sitting there and I'd read some, you know, you'd get those festival guides or someone sends you something. And quite a people would people would say was the Warp Tour was the most eclectic festival of the summer. And this is when we were being stacked up and compared to Lollapalooza or 
ACL or Coachella or some of the other touring festivals at that point for people to say that that made me feel the feel good when I, when I, when someone else would recognize, I think the easy way for people was to discount warp tour just as, Oh, it's a punk rock festival. It's that punk rock festival. What are, can you name a few bands that completely defy people's ideas of the punk rock festival warp tour that you've had early on black eyed peas, the Deftones, Kid Rock, the Alcoholics, Ice T, Eminem. Mm-hmm. You know? Then later on, BB Rexa, Katy Perry, uh, acts like that. You know, Hot Chell Ray. You know <laughs> that you know these kind of bands that you know that you know they were not, but they had punk in their hearts that they were willing to get out there and, and work as hard as the other bands did and and mm-hmm. get out there and earn their audience. Yeah, I remember the year that you had uh, Eminem. You also had Papa Roach and Weezer. I mean, pretty wild. Yeah, you know, Weezer came back. Weezer, Weezer. There was a moment that at that point in time, really, River, from what you know, everyone and I was told, and even he didn't have confidence that anyone cared about Weezer. Mm-hmm. So they came back and played that first part of the tour, and the crowds loved him, and it rebuilt his confidence that they're still a relevant band. It's kind of crazy, right? Definitely. Kind of the same reason I think Green Day came back out on Warp Tour when they when they finally did Warp Tour. Um, you know, Papa Roach, crossing over the metal, you know. Um, we were always kind of trying to mix it up. And Papa Roach, they were nice guys. Sure, you, sh- you should come out on the road with us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they ca- they came up playing with punk and ska bands too. So even though they play, you know, new metal, you know, I don't think that really mattered to them. No, I don't think so at all. Did it seem more like then, you know, kind of to my original question that in a way Warp Tour really was more of like a, a scene band? oriented festival with some exceptions no well, i mean i think it was reverse we'd we'd, we'd have definitely we'd, we'd we'd pay homage to the past but always looking to the future and if that future was a certain scene of bands they were definitely going to be represented at different times maybe a little more heavy heavily so the final year of uh, warp tour is the is the only year that you decided to just sort of let go of quote-unquote relevant bands and just sort of play bands from the past that you liked and just keep it like that. Be, be, just let yourself be a retro festival, nostalgia fest. Absolutely. Yeah. We probably could have taken Warp Tour for another four or five years as a retro festival, I think. Mm-hmm. But sans a pandemic, you know, which our timing was pretty good in 2019 to say that was it. <laughs> um, but yeah, in 2018, I go, you know what? I'm going out with friends. I'm going to go out with artists. I'm not going to have any problems on the road this summer. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to know everyone that's out with me. And we're going to go one lap around the country and say thank you to those who come out. And we had a massive summer. We had a big summer. It was our second biggest summer of the ever. Mm-hmm. And then we ended in, you know, it was a great way to wrap up. Do that great tour in 2018 with your friends. Do those uh, the two shows, Atlantic City and San Francisco in 2019. We did a show at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they exi- our exhibit opened. And, you know, button it up and then get ready for the pandemic. I guess I had good timing in my life. Great timing. <laughs> yeah. So after 25 years, just kind of put a nice bow on it. And, uh, you know, hey, there's discussions. There's things. I'm doing this charity show up in Vegas, kind of tied in with the Warp philosophy that's tied in around that. Uh, when we were young festival, I'm doing our bowling tournament that we used to do for charity and the Strange 90 show. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going away, but I just don't know if there's a, point or time or if it would if you could do something like warp tour especially with the economics these yeah. days 
All that gas. <laughs> all the gas, yeah. All the gas. All the insurance, everything else. You end up kind of being associated with Warp Tour. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, was that intentional to be sort of the face of Warp Tour? No, it was not at first. At first, I was going to be like, hey, I'm the guy who loaded your trucks and vans, and I've got a good idea, I think, you know? But you learn that if you really believe in something, you're going to talk about it. You're going to be the one. Because what I did was Blink-182 couldn't afford a bus when they came out with us in like 97. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, you could ride on the floor of my bus, you know? Or, you know, we had bunks for them. At first, it was floor. We got them a bunk. And then, but I'll need you to talk to the press about Warp Tour because it's this thing starting to go. I want someone that can talk about it. And then I realized they were talking, they wanted to talk about their new album coming out. They needed to talk about what they were all about. And that's where I said, you know what? I'm going to step out and say this is, even though the bands knew I was behind it, and I think that's why I got bands like, you know, to play it early on, 95 and 96, uh, especially in 96, um, you know, with Pennywise and No Effects, knowing me from working in the venues. But I was at that point, I need to, if I really want, I have to talk about it as passionately as the one who, who started and believed in it. And, uh, yeah. you know, I learned how to, you know, be more of a, a front out front, but I was still always there to load the trucks, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> and I think that's why I was out at a festival this week and, you know, all my old crew was there and they were saying, Kevin, when are we going to get together? And I go, I couldn't afford you guys anymore. And they go, we don't care. We'd love to all get together and do this again. If we could. Oh man. Yeah. Which, which makes you feel pretty good that they, they remember those, that period of their lives as, as being something important. You've done a lot of like, um, Stuff with stuff, you know, in the last few years, like I think you've done some podcasting about Warp Tour and you kind of, um, I feel like you're kind of assessing your legacy with it, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think in some ways you do, you, you start to reflect back, but I use a lot of those things that I'm reflecting on in the, my classroom settings where I, I you know, I, I pull some of those lessons I've learned. I, I pull back some of those early reflections that don't really make sense until you can have a moment to sit there and think about them. And, I, and I'm trying to hopefully set up some of my students for um, that post that creative but successful business so you can do good and do good business. So that's really the philosophy I teach in school. And um, so far, it seems to be working. I have a lot of students out there that are getting jobs. And if they can go in the world and, you know, my wife's like, God, you really want all these kids to go in the music business? It was so hard. And I said, well, if they could take a little bit of the philosophy that I think we, we, we built through Warped and some of my other projects, then, you know, that'd be okay. That'd be okay. Do you look back and have any regrets about anything related to Warp Tour? Sometimes I let Warp Tour uh, become... A, the, the priority versus some family things, you know, mm -hmm. but we worked through that. And then, you know, being able to tour with my daughters, they got to tour with me when they hit 14, 15 years old, they came out and worked on the tour and they learned how to work real hard. They both worked really hard. They didn't get, they didn't skate on anything. They <laughs> had jobs out there and they really impressed people with their work ethic. And I see that to this day, my daughter is day-to-day -day manager for Avril Lavigne, and she's right now running around this morning getting ready for the Hollywood Walk, um, Walk of Fame star that's opening this in a couple hours here, or it's probably open right now. I think it started at 1145. And my other daughter, you know, picked up, and she's environmentally conscious and everything, and went to school for science and is a, an environmental specialist for uh, a large corporation as her first job out of college. And she's taking maybe some of that environmental stuff that maybe she was influenced by that we were trying to do on tour. 
So, you know, you look back and the regrets, um, you can't really have them when you did something that lasted 25 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, running a festival probably is probably so massively difficult and complicated. I am, you know, you you look at, you you know, you, you, Hey, there's some, you know, you had to make decisions and some of those decisions you had to make very quickly or on the spot. And then maybe later on you looked at me and go, well, okay, maybe I can handle that a little different, but you had to live and die by your decisions. When you're going to be managing that many people, you know, 800, 900 people on the road, and then you're going to, you know, come across a half a million people that are asking you to keep them safe and, and give them a good time. Um, you could, you have to make some decisions that were not very popular, um, mm-hmm. but you had to make them on the spot. And then you sit here later on now, you're talking towards, like I always say, I'm, I'm never going to run out of things to do. You just run out of time in life. You know, you look back and go, well, maybe I could have, like, if I, if I had the knowledge I had, if I had the knowledge I had 15, 20 years later, could we have saved Brad Knoll's life? Mm. That's why I worked with people like Music Cares. And that's why I was on the board of Music Cares. So I could learn and maybe help the next Brad Knoll make it through a hard time. Yeah. But nah, at this point, you know, you, you have critics in life. You have people that say you suck. But I go, you know what? Come stack up your life next to mine someday, you know, and if you really and show me and it's fine. It's not like a challenge, but it's like go out and, and, and then, you know, stack it up. If you're going to complain, do it better. It goes back to 97. I always told someone, I said, someone's going to be sitting in a garage in 1997. I did that punk rock Holocaust movie or not punk rock summer camp. And I said, someone's kids in a garage right now thinking how he's going to kick Kevin Lyman's ass. <laughs> and, and do it better. Maybe someone did, but I don't know if anyone ever did for a scene of music um, that I was part of and very proud of being part of. So in, uh, in 2015, you tweeted ska makes generations come together. Do you, do you remember making that tweet? Oh, probably. God, that sounds like an emo moment. <laughs> Jesus, um, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kind of curious if there was anything, if you remember what inspired that tweet. I might've been at a show. Probably I was at a show or watching a band and I just said, I was watching young people getting turned on to ska and like their parents having a great time. Yeah. You know, I would see that. I know, you know, that during, and I don't know the exact band, whether it's Big D and the Kids Table or Less Than Jake or any of these bands, I would see the generations having a great time watching ska. Oh, you, you just reminded me of a question I was going to ask you. I heard, I don't remember who said it, but I heard that you told Side One Dummy that if you do not sign Big D, that they're dumb. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but you were, you, you were a fan and you were very impressed with them prior to them signing on Side One Dummies. I was impressed with Dave as a person, as also as a musician, and also as a just the vibe of Dave uh, McBain and the band and like they needed a home. So we should be that home. You know, we did put out a Boston's record for them at one point when they weren't getting that radio play. We Boston's were rare. You know, I just spent, I got this summer we were camping and, you know, Dickie's living out in the middle of nowhere and he came over and we sat around and barbecued at the campground and, and just caught up and, you know, yeah, we were cool. We were cool home for those bands that when maybe when they needed a little support, I like that. The big D um, the thing about Dave McWayne and and big D was that they, you know, they came out, they kind of came out after Scott had that mainstream moment. So they weren't able to be part of that, but they were very, or he, I don't know if it was he or they, but very um, 
determined. Like I know he he told me that he emailed or he, I'm sorry he mailed uh, Fat Records uh, every single <laughs> record they ever did, hoping that one day they would release one of their records. Never did, but you know he he was that kind of person with his band. Oh, nonstop and with the videos they filmed, uh, Little Bitch and all the stuff they would do. On oh yeah, yeah. That that so that was on Warp Tour. Oh yeah, we filmed a ton of those on Warp Tour. Probably my some of my. Moments that you wish you could scrub from the internet. Sometimes, <laughs> why would you want to scrub that? Maybe, maybe my, that, maybe my, you know, if my 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 daughters have grandchildren, they can play the picture, the video of the old crazy grandma <laughs> on tour. So. Well, those were like those moments, like you picked your moments on the road, like when you kept your punk rock credibility. You know, you you normally times I'd have to work or I was tired towards the end, but whenever he'd break out that camera, I'd have to do like pour beer on my head and jump on a table and break it or do something, you know, uh, <laughs> so just wanted to be, it was that moment. And then everyone would be like, Hey, that's cool. Kevin's part of the crew. And then I'd go back and nurse, put something like wound on my shoulder and some ice or go to bed, you know, but you pick those moments that are when the, you know, you, you, as it got later on and, and I needed to focus on putting on that show each day. Um, I didn't have the extra energy for the party at night. I've seen a few of those videos. And the funniest one to me is there's one where you just see Guar in full guar outfit part of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Everyone. It's like being in the horror movie. You wanted to, you had to be in a, a big D video by the end of the summer. Thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.